Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Hope. Uh, for those of you who are new or visiting, I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us this morning, whether here in person or at home online. Before we begin, uh, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father, we come before you humbly, and we ask that you would forgive us for our trespasses, for our sins that we have committed against you. We ask that this morning, uh, as we come to your word, that your spirit would uh, fill us and speak to us um, and help us to hear what we need to hear this morning to convict us of our sins, of our wrongdoings, of our wayward thinking and our wayward actions. May your word correct us. May your spirit sanctify us and purify us um, in the truth of the justification done by your son. And may we walk boldly in that truth, Father. Father, I also ask that you would just be with our president with his recovery from covid and all those who are struggling with uh, COVID or any other disease, uh, continue to um, bless your people, help us to have uh, peace um, and joy in the midst of these trials, in the midst of sufferings, and in these uncertain times, Father. Uh, may we look to you first and foremost. May we continue to cling to your truth, come to your word as we are this morning, Father. And may that truth fill us, guide us, encourage us, lift us up, Father. We ask all these things, Father. For your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we are at the end of 1 Samuel. So we're working our way through Samuel and Kings, and we're about a quarter of the way in terms of the number of books we are covering. So we are finishing up 1 Samuel this morning. And at the start of Samuel, we started with a nation that was broken up into regional and tribal divisions in the era of judges, um, and it was led by random men, and it was guided by judges. There's also a nation that was spiritually starved by the corrupt priests at Shiloh, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Yet in the midst of that, Yahweh was raising up a boy by the name of Samuel, based on a prayer by the woman Hannah. The corruption of the priests led to their destruction and the destruction of Shiloh and the capture of the ark by the hand of the Philistines. After the ark returns and after a couple decades of humiliation and lamenting, uh, the people of Israel ask Samuel to judge them. And in doing so, Samuel guides the nation in repentance, after which he sends them into battle against the Philistines at the command and blessing of Yahweh. However, after Samuel himself gets old and appoints his two sons to be his successor as judges over Israel, his two sons prove to be corrupt like the sons of Eli. Therefore, the people of Israel, the elders, come to Samuel and they come to Yahweh asking for a king because they no longer trust Yahweh as king and they want a king, a king like the kings of other nations. So God grants their request and in doing so, God judges his people by giving them ultimately what they desire, a king like the kings of other nations. So we saw Saul, we saw him being anointed, we saw the failings of Saul, the sins of Saul, the rebellion of Saul, and we saw how he lost his anointing and ultimately his kingship. And we have seen the sovereign hand of God at play throughout these chapters of 1 Samuel. It was God who raised Samuel in his way. It was God who made Saul king. It was God who chose David. It was God who tore the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to David. It was God who sent David away from Saul. It was God who sent Abigail to stop David from incurring blood guilt guilt on him by killing Nabal. And it was God who caused Saul, Abner, and all of his men to fall into a deep sleep when David entered into the camp. Though the people 
desire a king and had received a king, God, Yahweh, has always been the king. And in these final chapters, that truth remains. Regardless of who sits on the throne, God is king. And the times that we ourselves find us today in America in the midst of an uncertain election with all that is going on, this truth is good for us to be reminded of. That regardless of who sits in the White House, God is king. Not Trump, not Biden, not any man nor any woman. And it is God who ordains all things, even where we find ourselves today as a nation with the pandemic and everything else that is going on. So now, if you would, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn now to 1 Samuel 29. Uh, The passages uh, will be on the screen above me. We also have Bibles in the back if you need a Bible, and you're more than welcome to keep that Bible. We're going to be looking at chapters 29 through 31. And in these chapters, we're going to see the outcome of two people who have been anointed by God. David, a man after God's heart, and Saul, a man after his own heart. This distinction is a distinction we've been highlighting over the past couple of months. And we would be wise to know how the God who is king, who is sovereign over all things, blesses David, who is the man after God's heart, and curses the other, Saul, who isn't. And it's not simply because of a specific action they take in our chapters this morning. In fact, our chapters are a consequence. They are a result of what we have already covered these several weeks in the past. So as we read these chapters, let's keep in mind what David has done, what he has gone through, as well as how Saul has failed in his obedience to Yahweh and how he has only sought to satisfy his own agenda, his own desires, and his life, though it had confession at some point, it never truly had repentance. So let's start with chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces, excuse me, all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear, rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he becomes an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of you, you coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the Lord did not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, 
The commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So here we have the Philistines gathering at Aphek to war against Saul and the Israelites who were at Jezreel. And Jezreel is about 40 miles to the northeast of Aphek. So about uh, two to three days travel, probably more along the lines of, of three with the size of the group that they're traveling with. The Philistine commanders, once they recognize David and his fellow Israelite men, they tell Achish, hey, you need to send these, these Hebrews, you need to send them away. See, they remember the consequences of what happened the last time Israelites rolled into battle with the Philistines against Saul and his men. We read about it in 1 Samuel 14, and verse 21 of chapter 14 tells us that the, the Israelites who had defected with the, to the Philistines, that in the midst of battle that was given over to the Israelites, specifically to Jonathan, who was leading the, victory, the victorious Israelites against the Philistines, the Israelites who had defected had turned against the Philistines, which they came into battle with. So these Philistine commanders, wisely recognizing what happened last time, they don't want to take the risk this time as well. And they also recognize that this might be a setup. If David rides into battle with the Philistines and then strikes down the Philistines and decapitates them like he tends to do and brings them back to Saul, he might be able to reconcile himself with Saul. And this assessment by the commanders is perhaps the most honest one that we have here of David's intentions in chapter 29. Now, we will never know on this side of eternity what David would have done But when David, in verse 8, speaks of the enemies of my lord, the king, we have to wonder who, which king is he referring to? Achish or the lord's anointed Saul, of whom he refuses to touch? I think that after studying David these past few weeks, he would probably turn against the Philistines. But we don't know that, and we will not know, not on the side of eternity, Because God, through the commanders of the Philistines, has David removed from this conflict. He's removed from any type of opportunity. David doesn't even get a say in the matter. And this, in a way, is a blessing for David. We're going to find out why in a moment, but it's also a blessing in another way that this event, by David being removed from the Philistine, it gives him an alibi. It removes him from any type of responsibility, any type of blame in the death of Saul. Because David is going to be miles away. He's going to be over 100 miles to the south of where Saul falls. So when David rises to the throne, no one can say, well, you, you killed him. You played a role in the death of Saul. You took this throne um, through force, through violence. But by this happening, David is he's in the clear. So not only does this provide an alibi, but it allows David another opportunity. One that will bring blessing not only to him, but to the nation as well. So let's go ahead and read chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, 
Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down with this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the men who had gone with David, excuse me, David came to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziglag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, and Ramoth of the Negev, and Jotir, and Aurora, and Sifmoth, and Estemoa, and Rakal, and the cities of the Jeremielites, and the cities of the Kenites, and Hormah, and Borashan, and Atak, and Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So David might have missed out of the battle with the Philistines against the Israelites, but he has not missed out on the opportunity to fight and to spill blood. So after traveling some 51 miles to the, back to the south-southwest to Ziglag, which took about three days, 
David and his men returned to a burnt city with their wives and their children taken by the Amalekites. Now, is this raid by the Amalekites a response to David's raids that he's been doing against them for the past 16 months as he stayed with Achish? Perhaps. Remember, um, when we read about the raids, it says that no witnesses were, were left, but perhaps there were witnesses. In fact, there's probably always witnesses to some degree, right? People will see bands of men traveling to and from the site, and they might have slaughtered everyone in that village, but still people see you coming and going from a village that wasn't smoking to a village that was smoking. There could have been potential survivors that they thought they had killed, or maybe there were people that escaped that they didn't see escape, or maybe a boy or a girl who had gone to get some water was returning from receiving water and saw David and his men right away after the fact. We don't know. It could simply be coincidental. The Amalekites could just be raiding the land, recognizing that the Philistines are taking up arms against the Israelites, so they're going to be busy in the north and in the east, and they're going to leave these lands unguarded. And that's very well what it could be. Regardless of why, the Amalekites raided, and they burned Ziglag, and they take all of the family members of David and his men. And as such, which is reasonable, it causes David and his men great distress. They, in fact, they weep over it so much so that they lose whatever strength they have had after three days' march. They're exhausted. And it be, it, the, the exhaustion leads to bitterness in their souls to the point where they want to stone David. But notice verse 6. David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. And David did so wisely. Think of the experiences of David. David knows at this point that he can trust in Yahweh, that he can be strengthened by Yahweh, that Yahweh, that God looks out for his anointed. So David draws strength from this truth. Now, I was unable to find a psalm that's related to this specific event, as some of David's psalms are explicitly linked to specific events, as we have already uh, covered um, in 1 Samuel. But when you read the Psalms of David, especially the ones of lament, the ones where he seeks strength from God, consider this moment. Whether he wrote one specifically for this event, but if he wrote one 20 years from now, surely this moment helped form his theology, helped form the words uh, of which he writes these Psalms with. Here is a man, a king to be, a mighty warrior, the one who slayed Goliath, who's surrounded by mighty men of failure, who wish to stone them, to stone him, because their wives, their daughters, their sons have been kidnapped. Their fate is unknown, and their treatment especially is unknown. They don't know how their daughters and the boys are being treated by these men. David has no idea if his wives or if his heirs, his future heirs are still alive. Yet David is strengthened by Yahweh, the God who, has, the God who is king, the God who has ordained this event to occur, the God who has ordained this suffering of David and his men and their relatives to happen. We need to understand, and I think we need to try to, as much as possible, reclaim a right understanding of God's involvement in suffering. We need to stop separating God as if he is not part of the suffering that goes on into this world. Yes, most of the suffering that mankind experiences is ultimately at its own hand, but God has the power and the authority to prevent any kind of suffering at any time. But most cases, he doesn't. We must not be afraid of the truth that God allows suffering, 
and that God ordains suffering to happen. When we are afraid to acknowledge this truth, we put God, we put truth ultimately in a closet. It's like we're trying to sweep the dirt off our floor when guests come over, but all we do is we just sweep it under the rug. They can't see it, but the dirt is still there. We don't want our friends to see the dirt, so to speak, of God. But at the same time, that while God allows suffering, we have to recognize he has also ordained a solution to the suffering. When we remove God's, when we keep God and suffering apart from one another, we mitigate his holiness, his righteousness. And God has, we have to recognize that God has given us a solution to this uh, suffering, a way for us to be redeemed from this, ju- from this judgment of which this suffering comes from, from the fall of Genesis 3, a solution that involves the suffering of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, a suffering that his son suffered that is unlike ours, right? Jesus Christ, when he suffered on the cross, undeserved. Any suffering that we suffer, any suffering, we must not think that we are above it. We must not think that we are undeserving of it. And I know that can be hard because there are some sufferings. We suffer injustices against ourselves. We suffer, we get taken advantage of. We have no say in it. You can be very young and you can experience suffering because of some evil man or or woman. And you could be a young child and you could think, well, what have I done to deserve this? Well, you're living in breed, you're, you're conceived in sin. A whole, the entire race, all of mankind has been judged. So we must not think that we are above this suffering. Jesus Christ, however, his suffering was completely undeserved. We are transgressors. We are rebels against a holy God, against the holy creator. His son, our king, is not a rebel, though he suffered as one for our sake and for the glory of of his father. So the solution of suffering, look to the cross. When we think God has ordained suffering, yes, he has, but he's ordained before the foundations of the earth a solution to that, and that's his son, Jesus Christ, so that one day when we are redeemed and, and the son returns and his glory with the fullness of God's glory, there will be no more suffering, no more death. But for now, there is. Now, let's get back to our text. Consider if David had gone into battle with the Philistines, what would have happened to his family? Only God knows ultimately what would have happened, but David didn't go with them because God had shut that door of opportunity. God had prevented David from going with the Philistines. God is still in control here. So David, here at Ziglag, recognizing the sovereignty of God and wisely seeks guidance from Yahweh as to what to do. So in consulting with Yahweh, David is told to pursue. He's going to be granted success if he does. So the 600 men set out. The 600, these men are tired. They have already traveled 50 miles. miles. They have wept until they've had no strength. And now they're chasing, filled with adrenaline, I'm sure, chasing the men who have taken uh, their families and their, and their uh, property. So by the time they get to the brook of Bezor, which is about 15 miles to south, southwest of Ziglag, and um, if the location is accurate that we think it is, um, it's one of the largest wadis, that's like a riverbed, um, in this area. So it's not like just a small brook. Right? It's not just an easy thing to cross. So the men who are exhausted, they get there, 200 of them are like, we can't continue on. Um, and you can't blame them. And maybe it's, maybe it's the older men, and may, maybe I'm assuming there, um, and just you know, base, basic biology. 
Um, and so 200 stay behind, the 400 continue, and they come upon an Egyptian, um, and the Egyptian servant who belonged to the very men who caused David's and his men their suffering. And he's been there three days because he's been ill. But notice the treatment David gives him. This, this treatment that David shows, this Egyptian, shows the compassionate character and his obedience to God's law towards foreigners and aliens. An act that we all today, we really should be mindful of and we should seek to emulate towards foreigners and aliens as well. Whether they're legal or illegal in our country, we should treat them with the same kind of respect that David here uh, treats the Egyptian. And he does so, not, not simply because, I mean, look at David's mental state right now. He, 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 he's been threatened to be stoned by his men because of the situation that this Egyptian, who is right here in front of him, played a part in. But yet, in the midst of that, David shows grace. He's not being angry and sinning. He's showing grace. He's, he's providing this Egyptian with a meal that his men probably didn't get on this pursuit. This Egyptian gets a hefty meal and is shown um, a lot of compassion. And this is, in act, this is keeping with the character of a man who's after God's heart. How do you think, after reading about Saul, how do you think Saul would have treated an Egyptian in this situation? If Saul's family was kidnapped, you think Saul would have let this Egyptian live? You think he would have fed him food? Just consider how he treated the priests of Nob uh, back in chapter 22. So both David here and the Egyptian are taking risks. David is trusting the success of his mission with the Egyptian, and the Egyptian is trusting his life with David. Granted, David probably recognizes the hand of Yahweh in the midst of all this. Because how, what were the odds of his men coming along an Egyptian that's left behind who was sick three days ago? So David is trusting in Yahweh in this. And the Egyptian leads them to the Amalekites. David discovers them um, at an opportune time. They're celebrating. They're drinking. They're enjoying their spoils. They are spread out. They're not in any kind of shape to mount any kind of defense um, against David's 400 men. And so they begin the slaughter. It's a 24-hour slaughter. It starts at evening, goes through the night, continues through the day, and, all, and they don't stop until sundown the next day. And only 400 escape on camels. The victory leads to David and his men recovering all that they lost, all the relatives. Nothing that was taken was missing. They even acquire more because they take the spoils that the Amalekites had captured from other raids. And so as they head back, they get to the brook with the other 200 men. And some men here uh, in verse 22 that are mentioned as worthless, the same word mentioned for uh, Eli's sons, argued that the 200 should not share in the spoil and that they should only get their kin back and they should just leave. They should just go away. But David, as again, as a good king, he rebukes them. It reminds them from whom the spoil actually came. Again, the hand of God we see here. David in verse 23 says, it's Yahweh. Did we not get this from Yahweh? Did not God give us this spoil? But not only did he give us a spoil, but God gave us our lives. We're still alive. We are still preserved. And we've received our families. Have we not already gotten enough? So what's the big deal about sharing the spoil? And really, it's not their spoil to share. It's Yahweh's spoil. This action leads to a rule for all Israel to follow that, whether you stay with the baggage or the equipment or you go to fight, the spoil of the victory gets shared by all. David and his success 
not only shares the spoil with his men, but he does so with the elders of Judah. Uh, many of these cities, uh, we do not know anything of other than what is written here. Um, some, like Hebron, we will read about later in Second Samuel. But notice the message that David sends out of the spoil in verse 26. Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. This was the original intent of Saul becoming king. The elders desired a man to fight their battles for them, to ultimately fight the enemies of Yahweh. And here David has done just that. And he has the spoil, the Torah's blessing, to share and to show as evidence of God's approval. So though while David is experiencing the blessing of obedience to the law with the slaughter of the Amalekites and the treatment of the foreigner, Saul is experiencing the opposite. Saul is experiencing the full force of the Torah curse, the full force of the judgment that we read about last week in chapter 28 when he consulted with the witch at Endor. So let's go ahead and read chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Asheroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarach tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So we start this chapter in the midst of the battle between the Philistines and Saul, and it is not going well for Saul and the Israelites. Now, this event is most likely happening on the same day that David is fighting the Amalekites. In fact, the day that uh, Saul consults with the witch at Endor is probably also the same day that David is consulting Yahweh with the ephod. See, it would have taken the Philistines at least two days from the day that uh, David was sent away from them, right? Because they traveled about 40 40 to 45 miles with a large group. David traveled 50 miles with a smaller group, and it took three days. So it makes sense that it would take at least two days, maybe two to three days, somewhere in there, to get to Jezreel, where the Israelites were in camp. Plus, maybe some time to prepare for the battle, maybe to engage in some, some banter between the two armies, as they typically do. And we don't know how long this fight has been going on. 
right? They're already in the process of fleeing. So fighting has been going on for an unknown amount of time. So David was fighting the Amalekites on the third and fourth day after being sent away from the Philistines. So these events are very, if they're not happening on the same day, within a day of each other. So here we have the Israelites are fleeing the Philistines. Saul and his men, they find themselves at Mount Gilboa. And Mount Gilboa is about 10 miles to the southeast of Jezreel. And in keeping with the judgment given by Samuel in chapter 28, we read of the death of Jonathan and his two brothers. And remember, Jonathan was David's close friend, his best friend, um, whom they had a covenant with. And Jonathan, if David were to take the throne with Jonathan, still be, Jonathan was still going to be alive. He was going to serve as David's right-hand man. But because of Saul's sin last week uh, that we read about in chapter 28, Jonathan and his brothers, they fall slain on the mount. And it's presented to us as if Saul applies Saul, he probably witnessed the death of his sons. And then he was zeroed in by the archers and critically wounded. Saul, knowing that the Philistines came and found him on the mount wounded, he would be mistreated. He would be abused and suffer a horrible death. So he asks his armor bearer, hey, run me through with my sword. Kill me. But the armor bearer refuses. He is scared. Saul, in keeping with his character, refuses to face the consequences and throws himself upon his own sword, killing himself. Then his armor-bearer does the same. This result, the death of Saul, his sons, and all of the men with him, caused the Israelites to flee their cities on the other side of the valley and beyond the Jordan. And the Philistines come and they occupy these cities. It's not until the next day that the Philistines come upon the body of Saul and his sons, Malchiboah. So Saul gets decapitated, his armor is stripped, it's put in the temple of Ashtaroth, and news of Saul's death spreads to the land of the Philistines. His body is then taken to Bethshan with his sons, and that's about seven miles northeast of Mount Gilboa, and that is hung on, his, on the city walls in disgrace and humiliation. And the fact that Saul's body laid there for as long as it did, it shows the extent of the Philistines' victory, the, the, how much they have scared the Israelites away. And it probably also showed how much the Israelites perhaps didn't really like Saul all that much or weren't willing to go to bat for him. So his body laid there for over 24 hours with his sons and they were able to be um, abused and taken advantage of by the Philistines. But there were some still in Israel who sought to desire to honor Saul, the men of Jabesh Gilead. This city of Jabesh Gilead, if you recall in 1 Samuel 11, they were the city that was rescued by Saul from Nahash, the Ammonites. It was the city, that battle that united Israel under Saul in the beginning of his reign. So when they hear the news, they take on a daring and risky mission. They travel 15 miles all night. And in that process, not only do they have to cover the terrain, they have to ford the Jordan River, which is not an easy task. So they do so at great risk. They retrieve the body of Saul and his sons. They burn the flesh off and they bury the bones under a tamarisk tree and fasted. It's interesting that Saul, remember last time he was under a tamarisk tree, he was holding his spear and he was slaughtering the priests of Nob. Now he's slain by his own sword and he's buried under a tamarisk tree. David later in 2 Samuel 2, he's going to bless the men of Jabesh for their willingness to honor the Lord's anointed. So Saul's judgment, most likely, oh, I've already talked about this, 
Got my notes here in two places here. So in the midst of fear and uncertainty, even mourning among the nation of Israel, the hand of God was active. Though one king was slain, God, the king, was preparing the throne for another king, a king who would not be like the king of other nations, a king who, though had power to reign and rule, recognized that Yahweh ultimately reigns and rules, and that all kings, all leaders of all governments, receive power or authority that they might possess from Yahweh, regardless of how they feel about Yahweh, regardless if they acknowledge Yahweh, regardless if they accept his word or reject his word, all authority comes from God. And we see this through Saul. Saul rejected the word of God, and that didn't stop the authority of God. It didn't stop his hand from moving the pieces on the chessboard. It didn't stop him from bringing to fruition his plan. So this next king, David, is and would continue to be a man after God's heart despite his sins. So the question for us today, the question for us is about our response to the truth of God's sovereignty, a truth that has clearly, be de- has been, clearly been demonstrated these past 31 chapters of Samuel, starting with the prayer of Hannah back in chapter 1. We see the sovereignty played out there when Hannah prays for a child, and the sovereign God gives her a child, but not only a child, but a child that would flip the rolls, remove the pillars of the corrupt nation of Israel, remove the priests, and give them a righteous person who would be Samuel, and then later on, David. So we need to ask ourselves, are we on a path like David? A path that follows God, that trusts God, and obeys God regardless of our circumstances. And as such, results in blessing and protection, either in the here and now, but at the very least, if not in the here and now, into eternity, into everlasting life. Wherever that, once, whatever happens here, we will have everlasting life. And again, Jesus didn't come to deliver us from our circumstances here. He came to deliver us from a wrathful God because eternity is what matters. This is all temporary. This is all futile. This is all vanity. It's eternity that ultimately matters. So are we on a path like David or are we on a path like Saul? A path that goes its own way, that rejects the word of God, that seeks to self-rule, that seeks autonomy from God, seeks the approval of man rather than God, seeks to build a monument to oneself rather than a monument to Yahweh, as Saul did in chapter 15. A life, a path that ultimately results in judgment and destruction. And if that's not experienced here in this life, it most certainly will be when Jesus Christ returns. And it's a destruction that never ends. So what is our response? Consider two biblical examples. Will we be like Lot's wife of Genesis 19, who, fully knowing of what she needed to do, And despite the very physical presence of God's wrath, like quite literally, fire and brimstone falling on Sodom and Gomorrah, despite the very presence of that and the noise of it, I'm sure it was loud, still looked back longingly at the life of unrighteousness she was called to leave behind. And as such, became a pillar of salt and judgment. Or, what would be like the thief of the cross in Luke 23, who after blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ, repented 
sought forgiveness, and that very day was in paradise with our Lord and is still there today with our Lord and Savior. Only thing is, let us not wait until our deathbed to repent and to confess. For if you won't repent and confess of your sins now, you're not going to do it faithfully on your deathbed. There have been many deathbed confessions of people repenting, and then they miraculously live and survive, but their lives clearly show no repentance. It's easy to say that we want to repent. It's nothing to actually do it. And if you're not going to do it now, do not have confidence that, one, you will have time to do it because death will come like that to most of us. Some others, yeah, you might, you might get a doctor's notice. Hey, you're going to die in a few months. You might get that. Or it might be a slow death. You don't know. Most of us, though, I think it's going to come quick. Or he might return before it's too late. So don't bank on time and do not think that your spirits, don't allow your hearts to grow hard over time. Whether you're an unbeliever who feels the spirit right now tugging at your heart, calling you, hey, this is the truth, this is the light, what's being said here, what's being read here, there's something right about this, there's something I need to check out, there's something I need to follow, I need to deal with. When the spirit's leading you to everlasting life, don't ignore it. Yes, consider the cost, but recognize the cost is well worth it. Or if you're a believer who has been holding on to sin, thinking that you will always have tomorrow to repent. You always have tomorrow to give it up to God. Don't wait. You have no assurance if you hold on to that sin. Do it now. You will have no peace if you keep holding on to that sin. Don't allow your heart to harden like Saul's heart did slowly over time. Saul, when he started out, it it seemed, I mean, he wasn't the most capable guy, right? Couldn't find the large pack of animals. But, hey, he was anointed. He, he seemed to be faithful. He, he didn't know what a prophet was, right? He didn't know what Saul, the seer, would look like. He thought he had to pay him for his services. I mean, he was clueless. But he started out, it seemed like he started out faithful. But over time, his heart became hard. The more he rejected the commands of God, the more he rejected the word of God and didn't repent, harder his heart became. And eventually, it led him to that sin that we talked about last week consulting with the witch at Endor, which eventually led to his destruction. So don't be like Saul. Give up your sin. Give up your life, your identity. Embrace God as king. Embrace Jesus Christ as king. Because regardless of what you think about him, it does not change the fact. God is king. Repent and follow him. And no peace in that. When you look at what's going on in America you know, I, I don't know what next month's going to bring or the next two months going to bring or the next president, regardless of who it is. But it doesn't matter. What matters is eternity. What matters is my faithfulness, our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. We are called to be citizens of the kingdom first, America second. So as we repent and follow him, let's do so like David. Let's trust in God in all things, despite our sins. We're sinners. We're going to mess up, all right? I'm going to mess up. We're going to sin, and we're going to experience suffering. If you haven't experienced suffering in life, you're either ignorant of it or you've just been really blessed, I suppose. Suffering's going to happen. And uh, the older I get, I don't find any relief from the suffering. In fact, I only find suffering to be compounded as I age. It just seems to get worse, maybe because I become more aware, I become more sensitive, watching my kids grow, watch, recognizing one day they're going to die. 
I might watch one of them die. I don't know. I know other people who have watched kids die, and suffering is everywhere. We can't escape it. So we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. We have to trust in the reality that God has ordained it, but he's also given us his son. And so when we do that, then we will know peace. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for allowing us to come to you, Lord. Thank you for the examples of Saul and David and and what you give us in your word. Help us to submit ourselves to you. Father, it is hard for us to, especially as Americans, to give up our identity of being free men and women, being people who have the liberty and the right to pursue our happiness, Father. But help us to recognize that happiness ultimately is found in you. Blesses the one who walks in your ways and doesn't stand with sinners and scoffers. Help us to recognize the cost that brings, especially in a society that tells us otherwise, that wants us to chase our own will, our own desire, our own dreams, our own autonomy, that wants us to be actualized by our own selves and not in your will. Help us to uh, have the right worldview of eternity. Help us to come to your word. Help us to know it, to drink of it. Help us not to gloss over the difficult passages or the difficult moments of suffering as if it's just part of a story, but these are actual lives. These are people who have suffered, who have cried, who have wept, and you have ordained it. We may not understand it, Father. We recognize your ways are higher than ours, and we can't understand all of them. But, Father, we do ask that you would meet us, that you would help us understand what we are capable of understanding, that you will give us the energy, the diligence to strive, to study your word, to know your word. Let us not be um, without excuse um, of not knowing what we could know of you and of your will and of this world. Help us to um, be disciplined in that regard. And now help us to walk with one another, recognizing we're at different places with our walk with you, recognizing that you have us in different places intentionally because you you are sovereign. You see the puzzle for what it is. We're just the pieces. Help us to play our role in that. Help us to be faithful in that. Help us to keep our eyes on our own sins and then help us to look out for the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ and to call them um, into a correction and rebuke them, Father, with love and grace so that they may walk in the light. And you may be glorified through this. And help us be, um, help us to respond when another brother or sister in Christ comes to us about our sin, Father. Help us to remain humble. Help us, as you bless us, Father, in this life, help us to remain humble, recognizing that all the blessings that we receive, just like the sufferings, it comes from you. So help us to be good stewards. Help us to be faithful in what you give us, whether it is blessing or suffering, may we use it for your glory. May we seek to redeem the time that you have given us, Father, by the power of the Spirit. For we have been redeemed, we have been bought by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom before the foundations of the earth were laid, you ordained that he would go. And he did so willingly, Father, to do your will, so that we may be redeemed by his blood, so that we may glorify you into eternity. Father, be with this nation and in the midst of all these trials and um, tragedies that are going on in our country. May you use them. May you use this suffering, this uncertainty, this unsettling in many people's lives, especially within your church. May you use it as an opportunity for people to come to you, to your word, honestly, truthfully. 
May they see you like they have never seen you before. May you be glorified like you've never been glorified in America. May you build your church in a way strong, Father, and steadfast in your truth, rooted in your word, not in politics, not in um, the, the, the constructions of society, not in social constructions, but in your word. Whatever that may look like in America, Father, do your work mightily. And may we here, I hope, may you use us here in the Cooley region in West Salem. May we be a, a pillar of faith, Father, for your kingdom. Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, at this time, we're going to enter into communion.